Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome again to Episode 9 of the Kennedy Mile Report, sponsored by our friends at Rocket Matter. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Well, I have a new BlackBerry as my personal cell phone. It's the flip BlackBerry, for if you're interested, and I'm really liking it so far. But having a BlackBerry has made me realize how much personal email I get in the average day. Now, I know everybody's swamped by email, so I asked Tom if maybe we had an idea for a fresh perspective on email. So, Tom, what's on our agenda today? Well, in this episode, as, as soon as I pick myself up off the floor from finding out that Dennis actually has his first smartphone... We're going to help him out with his shiny new toy and talk about email etiquette and how lawyers can be more effective at the art of crafting and responding to email. We'll then turn to our Q&A segment and answer one or two audience questions. And as usual, we'll end up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can begin to use as soon as this podcast is over. Dennis, what made you start thinking about email this week, aside from the BlackBerry? Well, I had a couple things happen lately that, that made me rethink email. One was this sort of back-to-the-future moment that I've been having uh, lately, which is back in the old, old days, uh, it was a miracle, it seemed, that, that email actually worked. And so you'd send an email to somebody, and you'd call them to actually make sure they got the email. Well, I find more and more <laughs> with spam filters and everything else that that on important emails, people were actually calling to make sure that, that you got the email. So that... That was one thing. And then the other thing was I somebody had sent an email to me about an article I wrote, and they asked me a question. It took me a couple of weeks to get back to them, and I, re- I replied to the email. I was a little guilty about it, but it was a couple of weeks later, and not only didn't it didn't bother them that it took me a long time, but they, they actually thanked me f- for, the, for the answer. So I, that made me start to wonder whether all our usual email etiquette uh, rules were changing as, as the email environment changed. And, you know, like, do we really need to respond to an email on the same day? And so that was that was my question. Are, Tom, do you think the, the rules are starting to change on, on what people expect with email? I, I'd love to think so. But I think as we go through this show today, we'll find that for a lot of people, the rules really haven't changed that much. Uh, but I, I, I'm experiencing the same thing you are. I, Although I like to respond to email as fast as I can, there are some that I don't respond to as, as fast as, as I'd like to. And I find that those people aren't offended that I've taken so long, that they are grateful. Now that they may just be grateful in the email and, and are hiding their annoyance with it. But I think that the same thing generally holds in terms of response time for email, in terms of expectations. And I would say that expectations may be changing a little bit, but but you know, going back to the written letter, when you get a written letter, the expectation is, is that you'd have a week to respond to that. Once the phone became the method of communication, you have a day to respond to that phone uh, message. Now that email is around, people expect you to respond within the hour, uh, sometimes within five or ten minutes, asking, did you receive my email? And, and 
and don't even get started with instant messaging because there are expectations there too. I, I don't know that they've changed because I still have that expectation myself that I'd like to get a, a, a response back to an email. But that said, I, I do think that people are becoming more relaxed with their use of email. And, and as they become more comfortable using it as a communications tool, uh, then, then maybe their expectations are relaxing somewhat as well. What do you think about that? And, and and do you have any other tips that you might offer the audience for etiquette purposes? In a way, I, I want to agree with what you're saying, that it's probably across the board. It's not the behavior's not changed that much. But I think it is really starting to change. And I, and I think we're well advised to change change some of the approaches we take. I mean, I think now you're, we're looking for a sort of more dynamic, uh, what I might call a recipient-focused approach, with, where you as a sender takes a more active role in, in how you deal with email and how you think about what the recipient is going to do with that email, where they receive it, um, that sort of thing. I went back and looked at Actually, one of my most popular articles was I wrote a long time ago called 10 Habits of Highly Effective Emailers. And, and most of the points there still make sense. So, so I agree with you that in, in a certain sense, not much has changed. But other things I, I think have changed. And when you talk about instant messaging, I think that's been a big part of it because instant messaging it, you know, allows people to know that you need something in, in real time and you also know the person on the other end is available. And so sort of as I think about a new email etiquette, sort of the base point I come down to is that email is just one communication channel and that people need to start to think about whether email is the right channel for the communication and to match the communication they need with the actual channel. You know, I, t I totally agree with that. And, and that comes that came out a lot when we were writing the book on collaboration tools and technologies that that we discussed the fact that email is a particularly poor tool for collaboration, uh, although it is probably the most often used tool for collaboration just because it's so easy. But it's not a document management system. It's not uh, readily accessible to have a, a string of conversations that are easy to track and follow uh, by a group of people. And, and so there are better tools to use than email. And I think that's probably one of the first questions that people need to ask when they uh, when when they're collaborating on something or really when they're getting ready to use email is to ask themselves, is this really the right method, the right vehicle for the communication that I need to, to get out to, to the folks I'm going to talk to. Right. And, and I think knowing that somebody is actually on the other end, which is one of the great values of, of instant messaging, is uh, makes a difference. Because if you know somebody's ready and available to either do an instant message or they're ready to take a phone call from you, I'm not sure that email is, is the right choice anymore. Um, and so I, I think if we kind of as you as you want to use email, you kind of picture what the other person, what your recipient is doing. That's also going to change some of the guidelines you do because uh, we mentioned the BlackBerry, but you, I think people have work mail, email accounts, personal email accounts. Uh, they might be uh, getting email on a device. You may know they're out of the office, in the office. And I, I think the location and type of a device have become really important. Yeah, I've had that situation come up too, where I've, I've had people who admittedly were not the most tech-friendly individuals, but they do have Blackberries. And, and I would send them a, a, a survey or I would send them a link to a website that uh, was not friendly or accessible on their BlackBerry. And uh, it was useless to them. They weren't able to use it until they got home and got in front of a computer. And so I think absolutely that 
trying to determine what what your what your recipient is using uh, is really important. I I also think that we we want to be smart about how we craft the, our emails and and I, I can and I'll start this out by saying that I can't tell you how often I am angered by emails that people who take the time to just write the word thanks in an email. I, uh, I getting an email that having to open it up just to see something that says thanks. That's if I had to have one rant about email, that would be the one thing that that bothers me in terms of in terms of subject lines or, or messages you get. Do you have anything that particularly annoys you about email? Well, I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I guess the the subject line, matter lines that, that don't tell me anything um, have always been a, a problem. So when I went back and looked at my old article, that was one of my main points was to use subject lines, you know, in a positive way and to use them wisely. And I think that's as email etiquette evolves, I think the subject line is really the one place where the evolution is important. And, and you realize it's more important. So if you're getting hundreds of emails a day, and the subject matter, the subject line doesn't tell you anything. Um, it's hard for you to triage your email. It's hard for you to go back and find things. So if you get emails from me, typically you're going to find a subject matter line that um, is very descriptive and would be useful to you as you're looking through your email or doing a search to help you find uh, what's going on. And so especially if I'm attaching something in the subject line, I'm going to say, uh, you know, draft of article attached, but I'm going to make it easy for the recipient to manage their own email. And so that when their reply comes back to me, it helps me manage my email at the same time. And, and that I think is where if somebody wants to do a new email etiquette and improve their email experience, the subject line is really the place to attack. Well, you know, I, I think I think that's absolutely right. I, 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 as an example, instead of using the subject line that says "read this," that uh, instead you put something like "a great article on the paperless office that we discussed." It's it's right. clear, it's relevant, it's relevant to your conversation. But to go forward on a, on another reason why sort of we'll call it the evolution of the subject line is important is you you mentioned it briefly there is the ability to search email. You can go back and search your email for something, but but on a broader scale, it's even more important nowadays for electronic discovery purposes, because when individuals are, are searching lawyers are trying to search through, you know, gigabytes or terabytes of email, uh, having thousands of read this emails is, is not going to get them to, it's going to take a lot of time, spend a lot of money and not get them to the relevant emails fast enough. So I, I think that, that that's another really important reason that we didn't have a few years ago to make your subject lines clear. One thing that I'm seeing also in terms of, uh, your subject line or as part of, a, of a message are the use of acronyms. And I'm not sure how I really feel about that. I, I know that there's the acronym that I've seen more often is the one that's that's EOM, end of message, which makes people know that, that you don't have to open the email and look at it. You just put it in the subject line EOM. But I was reading the other day about some other acronyms that kind of I, I, I hate to learn a whole new set of acronyms like RRR for read, review and respond or NRN for no reply needed or AR for action required uh, or RR for reply requested. Uh, what do you what do you think about these acronyms? I think that I would kind of have to, my mind would explode having to decode a whole new set of acronyms on email. 
Well, I suspect they make more sense in the internal setting where people, everybody knows what the, the acronyms are. And I don't know that they've really filtered out into the email world at large. But I, a lot of people have recommended in the subject line saying no reply necessary as a way to help your recipient um, say, okay, I just need to look at this and, and I can move on. And, 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 I, and I think that is part of the changing expectation on, on response. I've, I've found that if I'm not going to respond quickly, if I just send a quick email saying, I need some time to think about this, I'll get back to you, people are really happy with that. And there are, there are emails that really the best reply is, is no reply. Um, maybe another, we probably can touch on a couple other areas. Tom, what would you say about attachments, which I think are another part of the new email etiquette? Well, you know, part of uh, here's my own personal thing about attachments. I, I think that one, as I said before, email is not a document management system. And so uh, attaching documents is you're going to have to attach documents occasionally to, to items. But but there are better ways to to do this, uh, setting up collaborative workspaces where the documents can be downloaded, especially if you're sending a large document. Uh, I think that that it's important to to not gum up someone's email system by sending something that that's large. Do you have any tips on attachments? Well, I, I just think that you need to be, I actually just wrote a, a ABA column, uh, ABA journal column on this that will come out in a couple of months, but I think you can do a couple things. I could think you can reduce the size of your attachments, and then you can also use alternative uh, delivery services that, that we've talked about before, where you upload a file and just send somebody a link to, to, to download it. So, there are some options there, and, and you just need to remember that a lot of places, people have limits on the size of their inbox, and, and your, your big attachment is eating up their limited space. We got time for maybe one or two more quick tips. Any quick tips that you have email etiquette-wise? Well, I, I think the big one you hear about is, is to be very careful about just automatically CCing people or using the reply to all. You just need to think before you do that. I think people scan emails quickly. So if you have important points, I think you want to put them in bold and do bullet points or number points. It makes a huge difference to people. And sort of, you asked me about pet peeves earlier. Um, what I really don't like is people who who think they're doing me a favor by subscribing me to their email newsletter just because I follow them on Twitter or add them as a connection or LinkedIn or, or give them my business card. I don't, I don't like that. You know, I'll, I'll just comment one one thing about the reply to all, especially in the e-discovery context, that the reply to all really is becoming the bane of, of e-discovery because it, it really is contributing to an explosion of email on people's servers. In fact, there was a story a couple of months ago about the State Department uh, uh, actually banned reply to all within uh, within the organization because it was creating a storm of, of replies. Let me finish with my big pet peeve, and I'm not sure I have an answer to this, but, but it's really black. Blackberry and smartphone etiquette, because you know having your smartphone with you at all times is is really an invitation to some incredibly rude behavior. How often have you been with someone and they've pulled out their smartphone just to check it while you're there? I am guilty of the same behavior on occasion, not in a professional setting, but occasionally when I'm out having a, a, an evening with friends. Uh, there are tons of articles about Blackberry and smartphone etiquette. You can find one by Allison Shields at last month's issue of Law Practice Today. We'll put it up on the show notes. 
you know, a recent poll at Hot Jobs found that uh, about a third of the people check their mail during meetings, and a good percentage of them have been reprimanded for checking their mail during the meetings. And, and, and I think that when I get to a meeting with someone, with a client, with someone I'm working with, and I see them lay their BlackBerry or their iPhone on the table before a meeting, it's almost like a challenge. Uh, if you're not interesting enough to hold my attention, I will start paying attention to other things. And it, it bothers me. I'm not sure that I have an answer to this other than the fact that companies may begin to start enacting smartphone use policies that, that, that deal with the, uh, the use of phones in meetings and, and, uh, and other situations with clients and with others. But, I, you know, that, that's something that I think is really a problem now that, that smartphone use is so ubiquitous. Do you want to close out the subject? Yeah, I, I just add. I would also add that Allison Shields' article is, is is really a great article on on the whole BlackBerry etiquette issue. Um, but I want to end with something that you and I have informally called the email golden rule, uh, which says email to others as you would have them email to you. And so maybe at the heart of of email etiquette is is the simple point that uh, that's that golden rule to think of the recipient uh, is is how email etiquette is changing, and that will be the guiding principle for what we're calling email etiquette 2.0. I do want to mention that our good friends, Adriana Linares and Debbie Foster, who are hosts of the new Legal Talk Network show, Web 3.0, uh, will be presenting a two-part series on email management over the next few episodes. So you, now that you know the etiquette, head over on to Adriana and Debbie's show and learn more about managing all of that email. Before we move on to audience questions, uh, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network and our great sponsor, Rocket Matter. By now, you may have heard of Rocket Matter, the blazingly fast online legal productivity application that is saving time and increasing profits at law firms across the world. Easily track time, tasks, clients, and matters. Take phone messages, manage your calendars, even print all your invoices with the click of a mouse. And without installing anything, stop by rocketmatter.com today and take a look. Rocket Matter. Work smarter, bill more, save time. Legal Talk Network has been producing award-winning legal podcasts since 2005. Subscribe to our RSS feed and start downloading today. It's free. And welcome back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Now it's time for our, our audience question segment. We've got time for one question today, and it's from uh, Jason Wilson. He asked the question, do you all see the big legal publishing houses coming out from behind the wall garden? Or was West's iPhone app a one-off? And I think by West's iPhone app, he's talking about Black's Law Dictionary. Isn't that right, Dennis? Right. And the second question is easier. I, I think there, we're going to see a lot of... Uh, of movement in the iPhone application space and in the other smartphone application space. Um, and people are looking at, at what the, the Black's Law Dictionary did. But I definitely expect to see more of that. I mean, the ABA Journal had an iPhone app, I think, almost immediately when the, the iTunes App Store opened. Yep, it did. But the, the walled garden, I mean, all publishing, all publishers, newspapers, and otherwise are, are really struggling with their business model. And what's going to happen is the Internet has really changed the whole environment. I know that uh, Tom, you and I are active in the ABA law practice management section. Um, I was involved in, in starting and, and working on the, the law practice today webzine. 
which is sort of a companion to the Law Practice magazine. And we've had lots of discussions over the years, and, and it's certainly coming to a head these days as to what's the role of print, what's the role of Internet, um, do you uh, keep articles uh, behind a closed door do, as a member benefit? Uh, do you put a price on the old articles? Do you put a price on new articles? I mean, that's one of the trickiest things when people have a walled garden, as they call it, is to say, well, what's the valuable stuff, the new stuff or or the archives? And I'm, personally, as a, as a writer, I really think about this, too, because um, I I really like writing for internet publications because the turnaround is so fast and the audience is is much much bigger and and so it's difficult to convince me to write for for print these days. I mean, I have one of my favorite articles I wrote was on using open source programs for lawyers and I did it for Lawyers Weekly USA and it was great they paid me but they're a totally closed wall and so I can't uh, I can't point people to that article who aren't subscribers. So I I see the changes happening there, um, and a lot has happened in the newspaper industry. Well, you know, I, 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 and before we wrap this up, I just want to say that I, I think that as new technologies appear that make it more attractive for these big legal publishing houses to peek out from the walled garden, I, I think you're going to see it more often. I agree with you. I think the iPhone app for the for Black's Law Dictionary was one was one example. But I, I'm I guess I'm not a fan of the iPhone for reading uh, legal texts or things like that. I think that what is much more intriguing to me is the possibility of using something like the Kindle DX, right. which can hold you know full page books now and it will be designed for textbooks and arguably treatises and and procedure manuals and other other types of documents. I'm very intrigued by the big legal publishing houses looking at these and deciding, you know, we can make some money off of this. We can sell these documents on on the Kindle version. I, I, I think that it's a smart move for them, and, and I'd really like to see that happen. Well, and they're candidates, too, for the uh, give your customer the Kindle and then sell them the content, uh, you know, business model, uh, which could be attractive because who, you know, you look at law libraries and hefting around legal textbooks and the like, and it's kind of attractive and, and they could see that. Uh, I don't, I don't know that we're going to see that level of innovation, but that's certainly a, a, a potential business model that makes sense in that world. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath for that one, Dennis. So. <laughs> now, it's, it's time now for our parting shots, uh, that one tip, website, or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Dennis, go first. Well, I sometimes think I'm like one of the six people outside of, of Microsoft and definitely in the, in the legal world who actually likes running Windows Vista. <laughs> and part I do, of, too. I do, too. It, Part of the complaints people have is that it's it sort of interrupts you when you're installing programs and asks you if you really want to install that. Well, I like that. I think that's a security feature that I really like, and I'm used to it from using Zone Alarm. And then I also tend to run really new versions of all the, the programs I use, and I update everything uh, religiously for, for security purposes. So I found a, a software tool that's free, uh, you know, on a personal basis, called the Secunia, S-E-C-U-N-I-A, Personal Software Inspector, and we'll put a URL in the show notes. And what it does is it takes a look at the programs you have installed, and then whenever, whenever there are updates or security updates, downloads, anything you need, it gives you an alert, and it also rates how secure your system is based on the updates of your software. And so, 
a lot of you can update a lot of programs automatically but this is great because it gives you that check for those things that don't update automatically and then you can say oh there's a problem here of you know I need to there's a security update for Adobe Reader I haven't installed and you can go get it and I it just gives me a level of of comfort it's it's another one of those sort of some people call it intrusive programs because it does pop up and tell you something's going on but to me it's a very worthwhile thing and, and I think just the cornerstone of security is having updated programs and, and as I was mentioning to you Tom that our sort of our go-to person on security John Simic uh, also was a user and, and gave it his uh, his thumbs up when I talked to him yesterday so uh, th that's that's a, a a great little program that I think a lot of people can use yep no no argument here I use it I like it too and you can't argue with the price it's free to use and to download I have actually two parting shots I'll try to be quick about them uh, one is uh, a site that Dennis turned me on to and now is accusing me of stealing uh, but I'll use it I have no uh, problem doing that it's called Bing tweets and it's a very interesting mashup of the Bing search engine and Twitter and so you you head over to there. We'll put the link in the show notes. But if you want to go to Bing or Google or wherever and just type in Bing tweets, it'll get you to that site. Uh, it shows you for whatever you search, it shows you not only the Bing search results, but it also shows you sort of in real time uh, the tweets that are coming through on Twitter about the same subject. So it's a nice way to mash up this information and provide not only historical information, but also something that's sort of real time. I'm, I'm a real fan of Twitter search, and I almost wish that uh, that instead of the real-time information, it would show the historical information on Twitter as well or something that not necessarily happening immediately. But I do appreciate uh, the ability of not only seeing uh, the Twitter trends, but uh, also Bing's insights on uh, on topics. Also, I'll talk real quickly about uh, this article, and I'll put the, uh, the, the link on the show notes. It's called 10 Things You Should Cover in Your Social Networking Policy. Uh, we're recommending that most firms uh, have some type of social networking policy, whether it's part of your internet use and technology policy, you need to have some ideas covering social networking and how the folks in your company or firm will use them. Uh, and these is a good start of the things that need to be covered or considered in that social networking policy. Again, I'll put the link on the show notes. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Uh, links to the topics we discussed today, as well as how to follow us on our blogs or Twitter, will be available on the show notes wiki, which you can find at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast at the Legal Talk Network site or in iTunes. And if you have questions or suggestions for upcoming topics, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.